Kia Ora from Victoria University of Wellington. Our podcast gives you the chance to catch up with our academics and guest speakers who lead thinking on the big questions facing society. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded. I am going to start with just a general conversation uh, question to get us started. We have distinguished alumni who cover a wide variety of years at the university. Some were here in the 1960s, and I think it's you, Pamela, who was here as recently as 2009. So there's a wide space of time here, and the university has changed a lot during that time. So the first question to get us started that I'll ask everyone and is what is it doesn't have to be your best memory, doesn't necessarily have to be your worst memory, but what was most memorable about your time at the university? Who would like to start? <laughs> Story of my life. Well, you know, Kira, Kira, the Yakwitika, Kira Tata, Tata, Ita Tuti, Nongapo. I think for me it's a it's a collective I think it's the the most uh, outstanding memory I have of my time at Victoria University of Wellington is the time spent in the student cafeteria um, they had the best rolls and really good meat pies. But apart, so, uh, but the gist was it was a place to meet. It was it was central in the campus, and everybody just about everybody went through it there at some point, even if they were rushing to get up to rank. Well, in those days, Rankin Brown with a lecture, a lot of lectures. So it it and it was it was our little village. It was where we met and verbally jousted. And then, with the with the aid of the of the social program that Rob Campbell, when he was on the student exec, uh, very helpfully organised with the student association social evenings, physically adjusted. So it was it was a place where we were able. It really was a a yeah, not quite melting pot. It was a coming together of and 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 some quite mundane. Topics debated, and then also a lot more esoteric. So it, that's where it was—the student calf. It, it, it was. It, it still stands out, actually, uh, in terms of for me. Oh, Kira, thank you for that. I was going to tell my story about the student calf and the Lord. The students had a dinner there, and we were knee deep in broken glass, and the food was so bad they threw the steaks around the room. <laughs> And finished it off by getting a pound of butter from the kitchen and throwing it at some poor bewildered professor uh, who had a dinner suit on and got him right in the chest. So I'm ashamed of that. But that's what it's like when you're a, a female in a big male group and drinking was huge in those days. It probably still is. They're probably still drinking at that level right now. But uh, what I want to say is about political passion. 
I think that when I was a student, politics mattered, what happened in the world mattered, we marched on the streets, we talked about it, we, we discussed it, we were active. I didn't belong to any association because I was a part-time student working in a law firm. But it was palpable, it was, you were making a difference. Uh, and I think what might be different now, and I don't know, others could correct me, is that it's just all about getting your head down, work, work, at work, work, and not too much about um, human rights and actually being involved. So I'd say the politics of it all. Before I go any further, could I acknowledge the High Commissioner from the Cook Islands, um, who is also a Victoria graduate, and it's really great to see you here, Liz. I should have given her the phone, and she might have given a much more interesting story than I could ever give about Victoria. But um, So I'm going to be terribly boring, because I was a part-time student, and I was at Teachers College, so what was my day at Victoria was 8 o'clock lecture in the morning uh, in English with the law students, mainly male. Then I'd run up to Kelvin over the hill. Then I'd be at Teachers College all day. Then I'd come back at 4 o'clock and do my education. And then I probably had a part-time job as well in sport in the weekend. So I'm sorry, I didn't have a great deal of time for parties or um, throwing butter at the vice-chancellor. But, <laughs> but what I would like to say is that uh, when I came back to Victoria in 2006 as a, uh, a lecturer at Va'amanu Pacifica, when that was started, and um, by that time, I, I guess my children were older, so I had a bit more time for things. Uh, we have five daughters, uh, most of them Victoria graduates, uh, so, you know, good university. We're all Vic girls. We're all Vic girls. And um, was uh, when I was um, at Va'amanu, that, uh, the most memorable time I can think is that we got uh, Angela Davis to come over. So if we're going to talk politics and someone that we had all heard about and read about and thought about for many, many years. Uh, so um, I was the, the director there and we had it, uh, I forget where we had it, but we had two big rooms, totally full. People were out on the pavement that wanted to come into this lecture to see her and it was just an absolutely fabulous, dynamic occasion. There were, of course, a whole lot of government uh, department officials who were not meant to be there because, of course, she was not um, quite, um, what's the word, um, <laughs> legal, I guess is the word, but uh, she was really inspiring. Um, so that's my best chance of a memory from here. Thank you. Um, well, I was there in the 60s as well, and there is a great saying that if you think you can remember what was happening in the 1960s, you weren't there. And, <laughs> and, and, uh, so I was a part-time student too. I wasn't supposed to be like most students at the time. I was full-time, but in fact it was remarkably a part-time occupation, uh, even so by today's standards. Uh, and I've got to tell any young students here today, and there are a few who are young by my standards anyway, that the change in that was driven by students. Uh, the Students Association ran a big campaign to get internal assessment introduced into the university. I happened to be the student rep on the professorial board at the time that argued it out with the professors, most of whom told me, Rob, this is a terrible mistake, you're going to ruin. I could see Ken Keith <laughs> nodding there. Um, 
uh, you know, this, this is going to ruin student life forever. And uh, as always, the professors were right. Um, uh, the, the student union uh, building, uh, we certainly spent a lot of time in rather than lecture theatres. I recall being outraged when the university at one stage in my career actually rented it out to hold a business conference there, the sort of thing that I'd probably be invited to these days. Um, and uh, we were so outraged that we picketed it and threw smoke bombs at it and uh, the University Council even had a debate as to whether the people that had organised the protest should be excluded from the university and I believe mainly because at least four of us were going to be senior scholars, they decided that it wasn't a good idea. Uh, but it was by the skin of our teeth that we, uh, that we got out of it. So, you know, a lot has uh, changed in that time. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, what I uh, mainly remember is, is those sorts of things. And uh, what I value, uh, though, is... Uh, uh, being taught by some very rigorous minds uh, how to think, uh, how to write, how to listen. And they were not things that I'd learnt at school. Uh, and uh, that still sticks in my mind. Can't remember a single fact I learned at university. I've forgotten them all, but those are the things that stick with me. Thanks. Uh, so I went to Victoria three separate times between finishing school in um, ooh, 1990 and then to 2009. So I did my Bachelor of Architecture in two stints, um, the first one straight out of architecture school. And there's a lovely project in the first week or so that you do at architecture school. You're put into groups and given um, paper, string and plastic and asked to create an overnight shelter. Um, you then obviously truck your overnight shelter out somewhere remote up the Hutt Valley into the bush and proceed to stay overnight, to which we had one of the windiest nights ever and woke up with no shelter whatsoever. Um, but luckily we'd all had enough time around the campfire the night before that we weren't um, too worried about whether there was a shelter over us or not by then. Um, so there are some themes. Um, I guess the second time I went back to architecture school, the interesting thing with architecture, of course, is it's not exam-based. You spend a lot of time standing up um, defending your work and being subject to a critique, which is exactly as it sounds, a critical inquiry. And I noticed that um, it was really tough for folks straight out of school um, to have that level of self-confidence. The folks who could really defend their work were those that were returned students, that had past lives, done other careers. So that helped me make the decision to leave to go snowboarding and luckily got accepted back seven years later. I remember the first few months my head just hurting from the fluorescent lights and being indoors. Um, you know, that was just the biggest shock to my system after being outside almost every day for seven years. But um, the really lovely thing about that time, um, when most people were seven years younger than me, was this amazing spirit in the studio. And we lobbied politically quite hard to keep our studio, to keep our personal desk spaces, but a lot of the student body would work through the night when there were lead-ups to deadlines. So this culture of the overnighter was huge. 
I was like Cinderella, I had to be home by midnight or else I turned into a pumpkin and I would come back early in the morning and people would have been there all night um, with varying degrees of work um, completed in that time, but certainly lots of stories. So a really lovely culture and a lot of those people are still close friends, which is awesome. My third stint is much like the other women on the panel. Um, I had family, children, I was part-time, I did masters, and my core memories are really about bundling my baby into the back of my bike, getting her to daycare, running as fast as I can on, on my bike, pedaling to get to you know, the post-grad studio. And they always remarked at the crèche, why are you always in such a hurry? Have you got a major deadline? I'm like, yes, I just want to get to my computer and my books and you know, get some brain food. So that was my overriding memory of that master's time. <laughs> I, I think um, when it comes to the party question, I, I'm with the judge here. I'm a firm believer that uh, if you work hard, you also need to uh, play hard, or at least a little, otherwise uh, your life gets out of balance. So um, my, one of my uh, memorable, memorable experiences with, uh, with Vic is actually a party that I have not been to. Uh, unfortunately, it's got uh, to do with that I, uh, when I did my master's degree here, I was uh, doing a lot of field work at Mount Erebus, and, uh, and not Erebus. Actually, I did Erebus work later, but that was Rua Pehu at the beginning. And I was staying in a little um, uh, instrument uh, shack from uh, GNS at, uh, at uh, Rua Pehu uh, overnight when I was servicing my seismometers in the field. And... Um, it's actually a, a quite a lonely place. You have this little mattress there and this humming and uh, with all the computers and and uh, there's nobody around and uh, it's it's but it's still a, an experience of being on that volcano in that little hut that has a lot of experience, uh, a lot of history uh, from volcanologists working there. <coughs> and one one night actually I got a call on my on my cell phone. And uh, just for the younger ones uh, back here, uh, back then cell phones were not smartphones, but they had like little uh, buttons. And uh, uh, that related, uh, well, that led to a phenomenon that unfortunately is not around anymore. It's uh, called a butt call, which uh, uh, people usually got when their names started with an A, like mine, Alex, uh, in the, the address books. I uh, uh, always got those calls from people who never remembered calling me. And uh, that night, something like that happened when uh, uh, my friends called me. Uh, I picked up the phone and I heard this big party in the background going on. And I was like, wow, nice. They thought of, uh, they thought of me uh, and <laughs> they couldn't be there because they had invited me uh, and, I, and I couldn't be there. And uh, uh, I, I was already happy that they would give me a call to say hi and uh, uh, well, think of me, but actually, no, it uh, turned out not to be like that. I just uh, heard people uh, having a party in the background and around the, around the barbecue and asking who wants a steak, and <laughs> I just sat there yelling in the phone, hello, hello, is there somebody there? No, but nobody ever realized that they called me. Um, so uh, that was one of my, my memories. But actually, it leads me to, a, to actually a, a, a serious point, is that really what I uh, had here at Victoria was the very first time that I actually did field work on my own, right? I, I came here, I was shown by uh, my teachers on how to go in the field on a volcano, put up a seismometer, and, and uh, put it all up. And 
which is really an art by itself. And then uh, people, after a while, told me, uh, well, now I think it's your time. Uh, I think you can do it on your own. And they just sent me in the field. I got a car from uh, School of Earth Sciences, and they said, well, uh, it's now your project. And you really have to uh, work with the data yourself later on, so you better uh, make sure it's good data. So you better make sure those... Uh, those instruments are working, and really, I, I went up there night and day on Ruapeo in this snowstorm and uh, changing hard disks. I had to dig into the snow, and uh, that really gave me the the confidence that I could do that. Uh, really, by being trusted, something like that, by not just being told, "Oh, you got to do this, you got to do that. Uh, this is the pages in the books that you need to, uh, to read for your exam." But no, actually, people didn't tell me what to do, but they rather told me what needs to be the result. And that got me into this thinking mode of actually taking responsibility and actually doing something that I see the outcome of as being good for me. So uh, that's really something that I remember, and I'm very thankful uh, to my professors here and the university of giving me that, that freedom uh, of actually taking my own decisions. Are there any questions that people have at this moment? I think I asked this question for many young people because nowadays, uh, unlike your days, university is free, but nowadays a lot of kids, they, they fear for their future, come out of university was a big deal. And uh, so there are some people say, if you really want to learn something, you don't, everything is out there, internet and uh, YouTube. But I personally believe there is something else at university. And I'm just wondering, what will be the second most important thing if people go to university, you feel they should invest their energy on other than studying? And another thing I'm very curious about is that when you, when you guys, um, I mean, graduate from VEC, and you obviously have friends from other universities, what do you think you're most, uh, the the major difference between Vic graduates and the, those people, say, from Auckland or, or other universities? Um, sorry, uh, yeah, other than you are very proud of, you laugh at when people are talking about how windy or how steep places are, you just say, there's, there's no wind at all. <laughs> just, um, just a single word answer to the what's missing from the internet and YouTube. Um, people? Look, I, th I think it is uh, changing. Uh, my own view, and it's a view which <clears throat> I think increasingly people in the business world are taking, uh, is that the relevance of formal education uh, is falling for uh, what makes for success in work, uh, in, in careers. Uh, I think that a lot of people, young people now, when I go and talk at universities or, or talk to groups of, of young people, which uh, does happen a, a reasonable amount of the time, um, they uh, are accum often accumulating uh, debt, uh, trying to get schooled in something that is largely schooling them about the past rather than the future. And so what I worry about with those people is that um, they are being uh, schooled, if you like, uh, into becoming what in an article I read just recently uh, called uh, uh, precise rabbits. Uh, that they, 
are accumulating uh, knowledge about something that is within a set of parameters that is going to change quite quickly. Uh, and the issue will be, are they sufficiently uh, flexible? Are they sufficiently intellectually curious? Have they got the uh, skill sets rather than the fact sets to work their way through a range of, of different issues? So I think there's uh, a real challenge for the universities now to shift out of that paradigm. There must be some way to capture the rigour of listening and thinking uh, and expressing that is the value I attach to my university career. Uh, there must be a way of linking that to the ability to gain uh, skills online and maybe come in and out of the university environment more than the idea that you go for four or five years, accumulate a debt and get schooled in something that is probably going to be irrelevant by the time you've finished it. Uh, so that, I think, is the challenge for universities. I, I agree as well, and I th uh, with, with the people with the people comment as well, and and amongst those people, uh, as, Ro as Rob's already mentioned, or one, one or two of us, is is the is the privilege of being exposed to 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 really committed and passionate faculty, and and they and they push you. To be to be uh, to be inquisitive, uh, and and to go beyond what you th what you thought was a boundary, was your boundary, and one of them one of mine is sitting right here. Um, he's going to get called out again tomorrow too. So uh, that's what I mean. You get you. Um, oh, and by the way, <coughs> although it wasn't free, um, several of us already a lot of us worked as well had jobs to to make sure that we could pay our way. The fees may not have been as relatively high, but they, they were still, um, relative to the average household income, they were still quite substantial. So m I know most of my colleagues that went through, we, um, except those that were on student, um, on student, um, student, student allowances, teachers, um, we, we worked part-time as, well as, as well as our study, full-time. So, it, it, so that was part of the lesson too. You know, you, you, you had to have a bit of skin in the game. But I think, uh, and I did say the CAF, but the other one I have about the Victoria is, is the Hunter Library as a law student. You could not help but feel the, the, uh, the gravity of all, of all that history, albeit history, but of all that, and, and they didn't always get it right. Um, but uh, about that was just stacked up in that in that Hunter Library, and it, it was um, I, I I didn't spend enough time in there, I admit. <laughs> now, but yeah. So, but can I come back to the the faculty and their the way they pushed us in the boundaries? Sometimes it felt like we didn't really been getting pushed, and we didn't really want to go there. But that's you know that's that's part of the learning. And then we got political. So I might take a different view um, because I think for me, working in law and then now in the social services sector, um, and that for me the single greatest thing about going to university was it opened my mind from uh, and taught me to think. And um, I know a lot of people who've never been to university who know everything. But when you go to university you find out you know nothing. 
And so you come away thinking, oh my God, I know nothing. Um, and it opens your mind to be probably less um, narrow in your thinking. And then um, I often tell Sir Kenneth that these, the, what was compulsory then was jurisprudence. And that was a subject, the one subject in law that wasn't about detail, you know, and the, how the law works. It was about what is justice and what is a law, why do you need this law, what is, what is an ethic, what is a moral, where does the legislator, you know, where do you have to legislate? And those sorts of questions are, are fundamental because we're trying to run a society here and nobody's thought about what is justice. I don't, and I know this because I've been working in the confidential listening service and state care abuse. Nobody has an idea what a duty of care or justice is. We have no idea of it. And so I think going to a university and not just learning things online helps you debate with other great minds who open your mind as a result. So I think there are deeper questions and the, you know, the imperatives for business and the social sector are different. So that's my contribution. Um, and you asked, you asked how Victoria was different. I guess uh, when I came as a student, but, but more a bit later because I sort of came back a couple of times uh, when we had our family, was I think this was the first... Um, the lead university, I think, in Māori studies, when in anthropology, uh, all the great thinking, if you like, came out of this university, um, if I may say so, and other people would, would enumerate on that um, just a bit more. Um, so it was a lead in terms of uh, Māori tanga and Māori language, but also it was the first university where quite a few uh, Pacific scholarship students came from the Pacific, came into Victoria, and then they went back to their homes and were the judges and, and all those sorts of things when they went back home, and this is where they came into Victoria. And more recently, in terms of Pacific studies, uh, Victoria also led as the first university to open its doors to, uh, uh, you know, Va'amanu Pacifica and to... Uh, uh, so that, that's the sort of university uh, Victoria was. It's probably because it was sort of central. I, I'm not quite sure on the seat of government, but it was very, very open to... Um, and when I, w I actually finished my study at, in Australia at Macquarie, and it was very interesting to me that the law department over there, um, you had to do anthropology as part of your law degree, which I thought was just totally fabulous, actually getting down to people and uh, thinking about, you know, legal systems and other people's values, beliefs, and... Uh, right. Just before you pass on the microphone, could I ask you to talk just a little bit about um, your experience of what it was like to hold the first chair in Pacific Studies in New Zealand? Mm, that's a very interesting question. And all I can say is my life has gone all over the place because in the beginning I was, you know, a very good wife and I follow my husband and wherever we go and then you go for gold wherever you are and you make your place. So that's a sort, of, sort of what my life has been. Um, through my life and probably other uh, migrant groups, you, you actually often end up doing things that aren't particularly... You know, your highest priority, but then you have to do it because someone says, well, you go there and do it, and then you open the door for other people to do it. Does that make sense? So I've done a lot of things in my life um, that 
maybe were not my choice, but have always ended up totally wonderful because you, you do what you do where you are and you do it to the best of your ability. And uh, so that's what that is. I had, um, I shall leave that, but I'd hoped that I'd opened the doors for other people to come in, but it seems quite hard to get the people to fit the doors. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, look, I just wanted to pick up on the really good point that you had um, there about anthropology being studied at law. Um, I definitely see a future when um, we've got a more of a commitment to lifelong learning where the university can, um, like Rob mentioned, create these smaller bite-sized credentials, if you like. And I think what's happening in the trade space um, is really interesting where they're doing uh, stackable credits or micro-credentials. And certainly coming from a space like off-site construction, which is really a blend of digital technology, construction, management, design, business, if you drop one of those balls, forget it, the whole thing goes to rubbish. So you really need to be able to get a little bit from a trade-based entity, a little bit from university. Um, you want to have business and architecture talking to other equally. None of this first week of architecture school where they tell us if we want to, don't, if we want to make money, then go do a different degree. None of that stuff. We need to be much more collaborative um, in the first week. The other thing they tell you in the first week is hold on to all your lawyer friends because you're going to need them. <laughs> I mean, if everyone didn't just turn up and run out of the room, I don't know what was wrong with us. But, um, you know, definitely hold on to your friends for the right reasons. But, yeah, so... <laughs> Certainly a really interesting blend moving into the future. And I just did a one-month course called the Alternative MBA. Seth Godin, I don't know if anyone's heard of him, American entrepreneur, all online. Fascinating to see maybe how that type of blended learning will work with our universities moving forward. Um, the only last point I'd say around, and this is architecture school specific, unfortunately, is being really disconnected from industry is a disservice to our students. So there's got to be a better way to enable young people to have placements in industry, to be able to understand what they're getting into before their five-year term is up. Yeah, try before you buy. I can't resist before we pass to Alex. We will be the first university in New Zealand to offer micro-credentials, I believe. So happy to chat later. Um, what was the question? <laughs> Well, I actually do have a question for you, um, uh, if you don't mind answering this. I've seen some of the photos that you've taken from space. They're quite extraordinary, uh, and they're both uh, evocative, and they're, they're provocative in the sense that I just don't know how you take them. And so can you talk a little bit about that for us? Yeah, I get the questions about the photos a lot because I think it it appears to be something um, that I wasn't prepared for, actually, that uh, the photos we take up there are moving people so much. Um, I uh, sort of went in there uh, to space taking photos, not with an agenda. It was more like for myself uh, because I like to document things that are beautiful, especially if they can't be documented any other way. Um, so I, I went in there and just took photos, and uh, some of them actually looked a little bit like what I've seen before as satellite photos. And uh, that's why I thought, okay, people down here have seen those. It's not going to be a big surprise uh, for them. And I was quite surprised about the, the reactions that, that I got. 
And uh, I found out afterwards that this is probably uh, bec because I not only sent photos, but I also like wrote down a little sentence of what I thought when I saw that. Uh, for, for me, that was a little bit like an overpressure valve, uh, because when I see something very beautiful, I really have the urge to share it. Um, but then uh, being in space, there's not so many people around you uh, that you can that you can share that with. And I also think it's sort of our responsibility of having that privilege of flying to space that we also uh, make sure we bring something back. That's what exploration is. Uh, bring it back and tell, as a human, how is it like to be in space. And uh, uh, photos are a big part of that. So what I did is I just took photos of anything uh, out the window. I just, whenever I came past the window, I took the camera, I took a photo, and then I, I sent uh, those photos down with a little sentence writing on Twitter um, uh, or any other social media. Uh, this is what I thought when I saw this. So this is what surprised me. This is what I felt. And um, I think that ended up being, yeah, more moving to people than, than I had anticipated. Um, so really the, the technique behind that was very basic. I just knew how to uh, work with a, with a digital camera and uh, I just uh, took photos of everything that I saw. Uh, some, some, some wide angle photos uh, where you can see entire continents really. Like you can see Europe uh, from Spain to Turkey. Uh, you can see New Zealand and Australia on a single, in a single view basically. Uh, from the space station, uh, you uh, sometimes I zoom in, right? I, I took a photo of Wellington. I showed that yesterday in a public lecture, where you can see individual houses, and uh, uh, well, things that moved me, right? So I, I I spent a lot of time here in Wellington, so of course that was one of my targets. So in the end, I really don't have a, a big technique or a success uh, sort of uh, recipe behind it, other than just being being uh, genuine and using that vantage point, that special perspective that we have in space to, to make use of it and bring it home to people. I think that was, that was sort of, if I had to sum it up. Um, I sort of started with one question and now I guess I've got a two-part question. Um, so the first is specific to our Māori and Pacific experts. Um, how, can, how can people go about bringing Māori and Pacifica students into disciplines where they're underrepresented. So I come from a biological sciences background and I saw in my own studies and in the people who are above me in that um, discipline a real lack of Māori and Pacifica representation and I think in New Zealand there can be a lot of value extracted from um, I guess practices and knowledge that aren't in traditional science but can be kind of married with Pacifica and Māori ideals um, and then more broadly to the panel if you didn't come from an academic background um, or you know you, your, you didn't come from a place where your parents had sort of illustrious careers how did you go about finding role models who filled that place for you? I don't claim expertise in any area, but I'll have a crack at the first part of that question. <coughs> and, and it is this. I think it is the people, in this case you mentioned biological science. I think you need to find what it is you is that's, that's valuable to you rather than making them fit your model. Um, so you've already, you mentioned, and I, this is not a criticism, I 
okay, it's a compliment that the question's being asked, but it, flip, it on, flip it around the other way. And, and, and so how can you make biological science uh, valuable to that, to that group of people and that intellect? And, and, that, and there I think we'll find some answers. Because uh, um, a lot of us have tried to get, in my, in my case, and, and I come from a family of educators, I'm the only one, including my siblings, who's actually not a teacher. Um, so, uh, so, so, I mean, what says something about it. But it's about, so we've tried to find people and fit them into that different profession, and sometimes it works. But I actually think that's the wrong way around. I think it's in terms of if you're looking at, especially if you're looking at cross-cultural, uh, going cross-cultural boundaries, then try and, as they say, walk a mile in their shoes and then see how that looks. And it, it may be that you don't need those people actually working in that area. Role models always help. But what is it that is valuable and then how do you get it out? Rob's mentioned. Um, Rob's mentioned in terms of, in terms of, uh, this really. It, it's. It, it sounds, and a lot of it is stale, male and pale, being a director on these biggish companies around New Zealand. So people like Rob and others have managed to introduce that. That there is a wider element, you, and and that is valuable to the shareholders. And that's so. That's not trying to. That's not trying to get necessarily more Maori directors in or. Or Pacific, or anything else. That's just looking at it through the different lens. Okay. Um, as to overcoming backgrounds from non uh, coming from a non-academic uh, uh, background, getting and role models. Well, I, I might leave that to others because <laughs> I had an I had a role model, um, and and he's he's actually he's actually on a fifty-dollar banknote. So. Um, we're the only tribe in the country that's got our own currency. <laughs> but so, so we had, you know, and, and that was really important. We had that role model in our villages. Um, and uh, and every, you need them. So that's, that's a real key. And, and the non-challenging question, uh, answer to your question is find those role models. And find them and then work, then work hell out of them because they, they, they can be a key to getting people recruited. Um, I think it's teachers too. It's teachers who are inspiring and whoever's on the other side. Um, so I'll tell you our story. Um, our parents came from Samoa with five children and had two here. I was born here. Um, certainly didn't think anyone was going to go to university. And, um, you know, even getting into a secondary school, that was why they came from Samoa, was going to be a big leap. And um, my older, I was the youngest, my older brother apparently, um, it was time for him to leave school because he had to go and work and get a bit of money. We were a big family, eight and probably about different people coming from Samoa all the time to our house. You know, we had quite a, a movable house inside. Um, and a teacher came from Wellington Tech, because that was another multicultural school. And he said, um, uh, first of all, um, my brother Teo said, oh, the teacher wants to come and see you. So of course we all thought trouble. 
because that was, you know, all our life had been keeping out of trouble, keeping quiet, you know, not letting anyone know how many people lived in our house. Um, but anyway, um, so the teacher came up, Max Risk was his name, a, a very famous uh, mathematician apparently from Wellington Tech, and he came up this little, to this little house in Corburnie and said, oh, why are you putting your, you know, leaving, why is your son leaving school? And he said, your son can do better than this, he should be going to university. So it took that one teacher and then that brother went to university and the next one went to university. We all went to university. Everyone that came to live in our house from overseas, from Samoa, were all watching us. Then they all went to university and they're, they're aying. My daughters went to university. I've got grandchildren at Victoria now. And you've really got to get that. I really think it goes back to the teachers. You can't keep saying it's the homes. You can't keep blaming the homes. There's nothing we can do about the homes. But as a teacher, we can do something about the teacher and what happens in our schools. Most of our lives, my husband is a Māori quota student. We taught in Māori schools and taught in Porirua schools before we went back to Samoa. And always the school was the place that was often the most secure place for kids. And that's where we can be the role models. We can be the caring people that show another way of, of living. And um, teachers, I think, is the most honoured profession. Just, just a quick one. In, in the way I see my role now, and I, I passionately believe in uh, lifting not just the level of inclusion uh, of Māori and Pacifica and people of a variety of diverse backgrounds and skills uh, into the workplace. I do passionately believe in that. And I used to think of it in terms of enablement and, and inclusion. I, I now think that that's a kind of a patriarchal and colonising kind of uh, view. Uh, what we have to do is to take the pain and to realise that we are a diverse society and that the issue is what pain, we, what are we prepared to do to change the way we work in order to enable those people to participate fully. That's the issue. It's not about including them in the way we run our businesses. It's about changing the way we run our businesses so that inclusion is a given. It arises from the way we do things. Now, I, I was very lucky in that uh, I got uh, recruited into the trade union movement from a nice, cosy academic job uh, teaching economic history, where I could easily still be. Uh, but, well, you know, economic history department might have a different point of view, but anyway. Uh, I got recruited into the trade union uh, movement and it was there that I learned from some, in my opinion, fantastic role models. When people ask me why I'm still sort of quite passionate about uh, gender issues, I tell them I'm still scared of Sonia Davies. <laughs> She's been dead for quite some time. <laughs> she was such a marvellous role model for, for gender equality, to, to work with her with a privilege and to work with people like Ken Douglas and Bill Anderson and the way they fought for equality and fought for uh, people uh, I learned a lot from. But I learned most from the members of the unions uh, because that was a different uh, culture, different set of cultures. Uh, if I've got a minute, my, my memorable one still sticks in my mind is not long after I joined the union movements, the unions were campaigning for jury service leave to be included. Everyone should get jury service leave. 
and I went to a meeting in Auckland of the freight forwarders. This room like this fair bit bigger, but all the freight forwarders were Maori or Pacific Islanders. And the one of the rules was that the mongrel mob guys had to sit on one side and the power guys had to sit on the other side, otherwise it caused unfortunate arguments. Anyway, I stood up and explained to them why the unions were looking for jury service leave and uh, the guy at the front put his hand up and said, Robbie, I've got a question. Hands up everyone here who's ever been on a jury. And nobody put their hands up. And he said, right, now, hands up everyone who's ever been up on a charge. <laughs> and most of the, they were all guys, I think, put their hands up. And he said, right, so you've got the claim wrong. What we need is court leave for when we're charged. <laughs> and by the end of that day, I was on TV news explaining why we had a claim for, <laughs> for, for court leave. And it was a, it was a great lesson for... A, uh, a young academic who had found himself in the union movement, but uh, experiences like that make you realise that uh, the elite are mainly only the elite in their own heads, uh, and that the way to cut through that is not to spend too much time with the elite. Hard act to follow. Um, look, I'd just really briefly say my mind is being blown every day around gender and inclusivity and the new the new boundaries and um, you know areas that this is moving into. Um, I'm amazed at the unconscious biases that we hold ourselves, um, even when we've spent our whole lives focused on trying to achieve equity. Um, I know as a woman, I need to see someone do something. So I think to be able to believe I can do it. So I think the role of the visible role model um, for women or any other minority group is really important and for that reason I personally um, back quotas and any movement that gets um, folks into visible positions to encourage um, others to follow. And much like other comments here this evening, um, I have two daughters and I have on several occasions found myself doing things that I didn't really want to do but I knew it was the right thing to do because they were watching. So I think that's um, another version on the role model. Yeah, one of the uh, one situation in, in Europe that we face right now uh, is that we don't have enough um, people in engineering, math, like STEM subjects. Uh, that's so a, a big topic is how do we motivate them? How do we motivate people, uh, especially sort of the groups who traditionally wouldn't end up in those in that in those subjects, like um, people from a non-academic background, or uh, unfortunately also many women don't choose to pursue that field uh, just because they're sort of discouraged by society sometimes. So uh, that is a problem that we try to solve. Uh, also, from my background from the space agency, also we depend on uh, people, engineers, scientists, uh, um, and we don't have enough, frankly. So uh, the question is a very valid one for our situation as well. How do we motivate people to get into those uh, fields? And um, and I, when you ask that question, it's actually really uh, interesting. I also come from a non-academic uh, family. I've never really thought about it that way, but actually my family is a, is a family of uh, blacksmiths and uh, craftsmen. And uh, I was actually the first one really to get an, uh, a university degree, but I never thought about it that way. But I, 
ask myself now, how did I get motivated? How did I get there? And I think that the answer is in in uh, inspiration, like like you said before as well. Like uh, we need somebody, uh, be it uh, people from home, be it, be it teachers, somebody in our society to motivate people to uh, spark the curiosity in in people basically giving them a reason on pursuing something, giving them uh, a dream, right? Uh, having them develop their own dreams. And that needs to uh, be combined with uh, a self, like a confidence of that, that people can actually do it, right? You need to not only give people a dream, but also make them believe that, hey, if you work hard enough, you can get there. Uh, and uh, not by telling them exactly what they need to do and how they do it, but saying, hey, uh, if you uh, don't succeed by trying first, uh, the first your first uh, method, and, and try again and try again, and you will succeed. And uh, the combination of those two things, giving them a, like a purpose and an inspiration on where to go, and then also the confidence of that they can achieve that, that is uh, probably key. Um, in addition to what you said about role models, I think that's also uh, true is that we tend, as humans relate to humans, we tend to identify ourselves with somebody else that we think, okay, we, I could be in those shoes and if they can do it, I can do it. And that's why I, uh, I actually, uh, like what you said before, is that, hey, I, I wasn't always a, an, an A student. And actually, I wasn't either. I, I was at school. I had um, years at school where I was, uh, I was really bad speaking French. I, the, my French grade almost pulled me down such that they thought I might not make it into the next grade. Like I had to almost repeat that, that grade. Uh, is to show people it's like, hey, we're not superhumans. Like uh, all of us that we sit here, we achieve something, but uh, uh, we're just normal people. And uh, if we can do it, you can do it. Uh, no matter what your background is, really, no matter what your background is, uh, that is important. And I think uh, these things combined, um, if we work on them and try hard, then uh, that will lead to more people uh, included uh, from from minorities, from groups that we usually don't reach. Um, I just wanted to share um, <clears throat> the Rangatahi Court project because it's your um, question but another way round. So I've got a, a charitable trust called the Henwood Trust which works on effective strategies for young offenders. And we're working at the moment with our judges to develop um, um, an additional civilian or community response to the Rangatahi courts, and that's those are the courts where young Māori who, who elect to go there can resolve their family group conference and criminal outcomes. But there's no resource um, once they've gone there, you know, go, go to the court and now what, you know. So we're trying to fix the now what. And a lot of those young offenders um, really have had no education. Uh, so we, we, I was trying to use the circuit theatre model, oddly enough. I'm sort of marrying up my creative thinking and saying I've got the theatre over here, which uh, is an arena and has attached to it a charitable trust, and that charitable trust captures resources from the community, from Deloitte and Chapman Trip and others, and fires that money into the theatre. 
So I was thinking, why could you not use the Mariah and think of it as a theatre and then it has attached to it its charitable trust, which gathers some resources and then can offer educational opportunities and support going beyond the court and get those young people up and out of crime that way. So this Rangatahi Court project's underway right, right now. It's very exciting, but I'm hoping that those young people that have no education, that are trapped in uh, the criminal behaviours, instead of going along the pipeline to incarceration, can be lifted out, but there needs to be a structure. And so we're trying to create a structure within which the community can help. So it's funny how things that you learn from a university and you bounce into the theatre and then you bounce into solutions, solution and needs-based focus uh, for, for outcomes that help the society. Uh, we're a little over time, but Sophie tells me we have time for one last quick question. Thanks very much. Lucky last. Um, my question is for Alexander Gerst. Um, firstly, I want to say a huge thank you to you because I work in international education. We're putting New Zealand on the map. Um, unfortunately, however, you might be aware that there is a website running which shows all of the maps of the world which, from which New Zealand is omitted. So we're, we've been able to actually use your absolutely stunning photos from space to actually prove unequivocally that we exist. So thank you very, very much for that. Um, obviously, working in international education, I'm really, really fascinated um, by your own experience here, both at Victoria University and, and of New Zealand more generally. Could you talk a little bit about the specific things you've taken away from your education here? Heard what you said before about the freedom that your professors gave you to make your own decisions, and that's certainly something we hear from a lot of our students, but really interested in the things very specific to New Zealand that you've taken into your literally stellar career and hold on to and um, be really keen to hear about that. Thank you. Actually, it, it re I, was, I was thinking about that before. You know what you, what you mentioned about uh, many maps with New Zealand missing, which sort of points to some the ignorance of some people in the world. It's actually, you know, also your strength uh, in the way in that I experienced the same flying to space is that sometimes uh, getting a perspective, an outside perspective on things really helps you understand things better, uh, problems uh, situations uh, that's one of the reasons why we fly to space and I found a little bit that's uh, it's the same uh, thinking about the rest of the world from an island that's uh, really far away from uh, any other places that is an advantage sometimes really I mean um, to me uh, working in New Zealand gave me a different perspective on the rest of the world and uh, that is really one of the reasons why I enjoy being here so much, but really the, the, the part that's even more important is the one that I had the freedom to do things here, um, work right in the, in the field, you have the volcanoes right outside the door, and uh, many geophysicists that I know, they have never left their office really uh, to do field work, uh, right, you can't do that, so uh, being in the middle of, of this fantastic country and with this uh, nature, um, allowing you to study in the field and here, uh, that's a huge advantage. But really, it's more like the mindset. I really that that is something that that I enjoy to work with people who 
who didn't give me solutions, uh, they they uh, gave me they made me uh, think the right way, and that's really something that I think is one of the most important things when you get a science education. Uh, we talked about this before we heard it, and I absolutely agree. It's not about the exact piece of knowledge that you hear, uh, because it's going to change anyways, and, and, and you might, uh, might do something a little bit different than what you studied. So really, uh, the, the most important thing that you need for life is, uh, is problem-solving skills and the, and the ability to handle unexpected situations, the, the ability to handle change. And that is really something that's very important in my job as well, right? Uh, uh, if you fly to space, of course, you have to train on several systems that you know you will be working on. But really, the, the, the most important part, the tricky part, is to be uh, ready for uh, the unexpected, right? Because uh, things always turn out differently. And that is something that I think a good education gives you. Um, it uh, gives you the chance of handling situations that you face later on, uh, informed decision-making, using logics, uh, uh, judging a, a situation quickly, making, uh, like adapting your decision-making. Uh, that's something actually that I didn't completely learn as a scientist, because as a scientist, you try to make decisions in a 100% certain way. You always want certainty. And that's uh, one of the first lessons that I learned from my fighter pilot uh, colleagues who <laughs> that never have the, the chance of taking decisions that way. They really uh, have this other approach. Where they say, OK, uh, I take a decision, uh, take the first solution that works that I find, because otherwise uh, I might have crashed my plane if I think too hard. And so, really, that's something that I adapted even after university is like to learn how to make decisions. Sometimes there are situations where you really have to make the right decisions, a perfect decision, a safe decision, and then there's the 80% approach of uh, finding the first one that worked. Things like that. Those are like uh, general problem-solving skills and and dealing with with life situations. That is, I think, uh, the goal that you can get in a, in an education. <laughs> You may not be superhumans, but we're very grateful to you. We're collectively grateful for what you've done for all of our communities, nationally, regionally, internationally. Um, I'm particularly grateful just for the conversation tonight. Thank you for your generosity in talking with us all. Thank you to our audience for staying with us for a while. Nami noi To stay up to date with the latest cutting-edge research from Victoria University of Wellington, subscribe now through iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite podcast provider. Thanks to Tekoki New Zealand School of Music alumni Kenyon Shanky and Stephen Patton for the use of their music. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded.